Hello, Edgard. Hello, Gregoire. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. How are you? I'm okay. So today we are here to introduce the second podcast on patience and analyst expectations. And for the little story, and it's、mm-hmm. probably more noticeable on the first part of the podcast, is that it was not the name that we thought about at first for this podcast.、Mm-hmm. The first name we had in mind was on working with patients who can't do psychoanalysis. Correct. It was a longer title and it was specifically about people who cannot do psychoanalysis. And what happened is that during the recording, we realized that it was not <laughs> actually what we were going to talk about. We were talking about something different. <laughs> and that's something that actually fitted a lot more the reality of the practice, which is it's not just about patients, it's also、mm-hmm. about analysts. Correct. And the difficulty to entangle what comes from whom and also the dreams that are shared or that belong to the patient, but also to the analyst. To the analyst. Okay, so today, what's in the podcast in our second part? In the podcast today, we're going to ask the question of、uh, whether or not we are fetishizing a particular approach to psychoanalysis.、Mm-hmm. We're going to bring the question of frequency and the question of the analyst's desire. And we're going to have a talk about the creativity of the frame. Sounds like a lot of things that we are addressing. If you want to send us comments, questions, reactions, please feel free to do so on either our Facebook forum. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Twitter, or write an email directly to discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. My name is Gregoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Francisco Danielson. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. Is this just a question of approach? Are we fetishizing a specific expression of practicing psychoanalysis? Well, I'm not sure if we are fetishizing, but I would say that perhaps we idealize certain expressions of psychoanalysis or how we practice psychoanalysis. I think that might be bound to the way we train also.、Mm-hmm. I think we have mentioned before while we are in training, the end goal seems to be to become members of an institute. So, in what ways that idealizes a certain approach to psychoanalysis? Or forces you to comply? You will comply with Institute A that has a lens of, I don't know, self psychology, let's say.、Mm-hmm. If you're in Institute B, you have to comply with whatever lens or school they approach psychoanalysis. So, I, I'm not sure if we are fetishizing as much as we're trying to comply in order to belong. And therefore, there's an idealization of the process. 
I think there is a, some kind of fetishization in the sense that in the US, it felt to me that the practice is mostly limited to in office, mm -hmm. while uh, there is a great variety of practicing psychoanalysis actually it does not imply having someone sitting in a chair and someone else sitting either in a chair or on, uh, lying on the couch. Yes. You can practice psychoanalysis in an institution, you can practice psychoanalysis through art therapy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can even practice psychoanalysis, I think, as, as we did with Niketsu, uh, through trying to understand arts or different kind of uh, human expressions. Yeah, I feel like there is a potential tendency, uh, especially in the US, to think that if we are psychoanalysts, we are psychoanalysts in a certain frame. Yeah, two things come to mind. The first one is that in the United States, it seems that historically, psychoanalysis was connected to the medical profession. And therefore, my guess is that it's the fetishizing of the medical profession what happened here. Also, probably, yeah. And therefore, then when other groups, mental health practitioners, wanted to be part of the psychoanalytic movement, they confronted a pushback from the medical profession. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. The second thing is that I think in the United States, there is only one hospital that is psychoanalytically oriented. I don't know the specifics of that place, but it calls my attention that there's only one. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, you practiced in an institution. Oh, yeah. In different institutions, actually. I could say you could even be a psychoanalyst in the street. Interpretation is the doesn't have to be the main tool of action. Seeing your patients three times a week, four times a week, lying on the couch mm -hmm. or not, it's, it's, those things are not as relevant in different frames. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes, so if it's not fetishizing, it's maybe idealizing, we might have a certain idea of what it means for us to be psychoanalysts and this idea not being met, then we get frustrated because we stay stuck. We might at some point, maybe sometime it's for a very long time, sometimes it's just uh, from time to time, stay stuck to a certain ideal. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you mentioned was about practicing psychoanalysis through other media, exploring art or literature or social sciences and so on and so forth. It comes to mind that I read one book by Ferrell not long ago, and Ferrell says that he's not interested in doing anything outside the bounds of the office, meaning what happens in the therapeutic room. That is the other extreme. Mm -hmm. uh, he would never apply psychoanalysis to literature or to social sciences or to politics or anything like that, that he is interested in what happens in the room with a patient. Mm -hmm. What happens in there, my understanding is for him and some other Italian analysts is that it is a dream. The session is a dream, so you analyze the dream, which is happening in the room with a patient. <laughs> and you see, it from my point of view, those things are not necessarily excluding one another. Correct, yeah. If you want to understand your patient's dreams, you better know the culture they live in. True. And I'm talking about both the culture at large and also the culture as in of micro. A specific patient. Who they talk to, what are they interested in, and uh, the conflict within that culture, a mm -hmm. small culture, small group. When you're doing individual psychoanalysis, you need to be interested in group dynamics. There's no other way around. Your, your mm -hmm. patients are working in the society, they are working in groups, uh, family is a group. Um, if you only see the position as a bubble, as a dream, I mean, I'm sure they have good arguments. Yes, and maybe I'm oversimplifying Ferris' take on this. 
On the other hand, didn't Freud talk about the social? Talked a lot about it. And exploring the group dynamics and community dynamics through the lens of psychoanalysis. Oh, yeah. So sometimes I guess when we talk about the question of this podcast is like, what does it mean to be a psychoanalyst with patients who can do psychoanalysis? Of course, we know that we are oversimplifying by asking uh, the question this way, but we might be tempted through the idealization of uh, what it means to become a member and then a re- somewhat a real psychoanalyst because if you're a member you become real like if you're still a student <laughs> you're suspicious are you really a psychoanalyst if you're still a student anyway then the question is we can be frustrated with patients who uh, might not want to come more frequently how do you deal with the question of frequency in your practice I'm very open about my desire mm-hmm. to do higher frequency with patients. Mm-hmm. When I present that, I also share with them the reasons I think it's important to have higher frequency. Is the reason always the same or do you feel like you are providing a different reason to different patients? That's a good question. Usually I talk about frequency during the consultation period, which could be from the first to third sessions that I'm seeing a patient and I touch on the frequency from a general perspective Mm -hmm. saying that by increasing frequency the person will focus more on his or her internal world because the external world is not changing as often Mm -hmm. or as frequently if we come to visit the analyst more often. Now, there are cases when I sense that increased frequency might be appropriate later on during the treatment. And in those cases, I may express specifically why I believe so to this particular patient. And in those cases, it could be that there is a spike in anxiety created by an external event in the life of a patient. My sense is that the patient needs more containment during that period, and I may offer to see the patient more often. So that's a different reason. Mm-hmm. The same if I experience the patient to be deeply depressed. You tell your patients that you would want to see them more frequently in general at the beginning. Yes, I do so. And I'm very honest by saying that I have trained in a modality of psychotherapy that allows us to explore on a deeper level by increasing frequency. And I explain that with some examples or some images. But I express that at the beginning, yes. I wonder if you do the same. I used to. Mm -hmm. I used to consider that there was something really important for me to see my patients frequently. Mm-hmm. and um, I used to tell them uh, in just like you described uh, during the first session that they should come I mean I still believe and I believe then that once a week is a good start Yes, but I would tell them like I would want them to keep in mind that the frequency could be increased mm-hmm. and I stopped I stopped yes now I, I don't do that anymore do you know why did you stop? Probably different reasons. I would say that there's certainly a sense that I'm more confident in my practice, more confident in what I'm worth. Uh And there's also a practical reason. I'm earning enough now. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much this could actually really impact my, um, I would say, thirst for more frequency. Mm-hmm. I have a pretty limited amount of time available because of our other uh, obligations I have. Yes. So for me to see someone more frequently would mean to stop seeing other people. Mm-hmm. 
right now I'm, I'm at, at your limit in terms of your caseload. I think I reached a place where I'm just happy with the way I see them. Mm-hmm. I feel safe financially. I feel safe professionally. Yeah, I think it really influenced. There are probably other reasons that are at the roots of the different reactions that I have now. Yeah. But that's what I can feel. Yeah. I also feel like I've said that before, but it really struck me is that once I had a patient who came to me when I was in training at TRCC and really wanted to do a psychoanalysis. And I remember feeling so grateful that I would see someone three times a week. and Because yeah. usually it's a bit of a fight. Like it's a, it's a big investment to come three times a week. It is an investment. And I am convinced now that this is one of the reasons why the therapy failed. Mm -hmm. That the person should not have come three times a week. It was too much too quickly? Uh, Way too much for this person. Mm -hmm. Way too much. And we were feeling some kind of idealized version of what we should be doing. And it stays with me and how now I'm, I'm trying to be very sensitive to where my patients are and I do feel empty. That's how I feel. I'm probably not, but I do feel empty in terms of wanting to see them more. Okay. But and just like you described, sometimes I can say, okay, like this, from what you're saying, from what you've been saying for a few weeks and where you're reacting, it might be beneficial for you to come more if I have time available. Correct. But it's pretty rare. Yeah. Well, I think this raises another question. Either way, meaning me saying that I would prefer to work with a patient at a higher frequency, yeah. or you not saying it, yeah. that is something that the patient will build a fantasy about it. Certainly. So in what ways our desires, in my case, higher frequency, in your case, enough of this or not? Delete <laughs> <laughs> <eat> that. <laughs> it's okay. I keep it. <laughs> In what ways the desire of the analyst impacts the analysis? I'll tell you what I think, then you Uh, you tell me what you think. From my experience of moving from one place to another, Mm -hmm. I am certain that some patients will benefit from a psychoanalyst who is eager to see them more. But I can also feel how safer it can be for an analyst to just not care, to take the patient as they come and not want more than they do. Mm-hmm. I think that this sensitivity of mine comes from my experience with people with psychosis, to put it very broadly, with whom it's very important to have your desire in check, or at least to try to, because whatever mm-hmm. you're expressing that you're not aware of will have a huge impact on the way they react to you, because all the preverbal is very important. I think the preverbal is important even when you're working with neurosis, but I think I'm especially sensitive to that question because of my experience with this population. My experience was I felt relieved, and I feel like for some patients, it could have been a relief to not feel pressure. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, in my case, I think I need to be very aware in terms of the relationship with the patient when the patient makes a decision not to see me more than once a week. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because definitely I have expressed to that same patient that I would like to see them more often. So clearly, I don't know what it means initially when the patient says, no, uh, I want to see you once a week. I really want to work with you. But I need to be aware that I put on the table my desire Mm -hmm. and that the patient deprived me from that desire. And therefore, I need to be very aware of how I engage in analysis with this person. You see, it's like, are they going to be fed by your desire or are they going to be overfed? 
Mm-hmm. And then comes the question of, is it a resistance to which I would say to what? A resistance to the treatment or to the, the analyst's desire? I think as I gain more experience, my understanding of resistance to the treatment has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, probably at the beginning of our practices, well, maybe this is a generalization, but we think that everything is a resistance to the treatment. <laughs> some people think that. Some people. Which in some ways is true. The question is, uh, is what do we mean by that? Because like, yes. it seems like a bad thing at first. Right? Well, it, it seems to be a bad thing. It seems that the patient is not complying. Is mm. that the patient has been aggressive? It means that the bad patients, yeah, uh, terrible patients. So that's the lens through which, in some schools, we look at resistance. Yeah, and that's not how I see resistance nowadays. Mm-hmm. But definitely, we need to keep that in mind. What can we do as an analyst uh, with patients who can do psychoanalysis? The question is, maybe they are going to do psychoanalysis the way they can. Because as psychoanalysts, we might lose sight that patients need more than psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. Like when they come three times a week, they will sacrifice something else. Sometimes it's they don't want to come more frequently. They don't want to be engaged more because they don't want to have to deal with whatever they are feeling perfectly fine i mean i can see that sometimes Mm -hmm. but we also have to keep in mind the possibility that within that resistance there is also a need for something else a need for other activities a need for not being in therapy as much that their way to connect to psychoanalysis or to the psychoanalytic work will not be what we think how a good patient should rely uh, with psychoanalysis and it's been my experience that sometimes a patient who I see only once a week begins to explore other things outside the room meaning doing other things outside work Mm -hmm. and outside the analysis And that, for me, is a sign of growth. And therefore, it may say something about how analysis is working for that patient. Mm -hmm. It becomes an energizing experience. Or the patient may affect libidinal energy outside the room into other activities. Yeah, And that's the way they relate to psychoanalysis. That's how psychoanalysis can be helpful to them. Yeah, We might feel a sense of frustration in those moments because when we are very attached to a certain idea of what we should do, when actually what we do and how people can use it is much different than the traditional perception that psychoanalysis is trying to convey most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really think we should be more laid back in terms of what it means to practice psychoanalysis in some ways. Not saying that we should just give advice, just chat, uh, I mean, uh, unless advised, uh, chat with our patients about uh, our own life, etc. No, I think we should have a certain ethos in terms of uh, psychoanalysis, uh, ethic, uh, to put it very simply. And we should stay in our place as psychoanalysts. But the way patients use us, mm-hmm. that we can, we should be more flexible with. We are offering some kind of function to the patient. And sometimes we don't know that when the treatment starts. We begin to get a sense that we function for the patient in many different ways throughout the analysis. Yeah, we, I guess it leads to the question, to the fact that we are not so sure about what we do. I wonder how this idealization of what the psychoanalyst should do, should say, should behave is also from us a defensive reaction, actually, because it's a very difficult job in a sense that, as uh, one of my uh, professors in Paris would keep on saying, at the time I wouldn't really understand what she meant, we are our own tool yeah. and we are the only tool that we have. And that can be very anxiety-provoking. Yeah. 
I feel like the more anxious we can be about being our own tool and having only that uh, for us, uh, the more we might be tempted to attach ourselves or identify ourselves with theory, to put it simply. Because in quote again, good patient is a theory. Like how a good patient should behave and should benefit from uh, therapy is a theory. Like every person who's going to come to us is different and they will appreciate or not the work we do their own way. So that's where I think the fact that the less we desire can be helpful. But again, clearly this is not going to function well for every patient. Some mm -hmm. patients will definitely need us to be a lot more engaged, wanting to see more, to which they can say, as you said, no, no, once a week is fine. <laughs> But it doesn't mean they might not appreciate that you want more of them. Mm -hmm. And that they can, you know, keep you away and have this pleasure. That might be too. the case with some patients, as it could be the case that some of them are afraid of intimacy. I mean, they already come once a week. I mean, it's difficult to be afraid of intimacy when you have analysis, <laughs> though. Though I have some cases, I have found that a person feels more comfortable talking to a stranger, meaning me, mm -hmm. than talking to other people. Okay. that they know well <laughs> yes for us i mean there is a somewhat a professional deformation is that we were the good students we were engaged in a, at least a three time a week analysis uh, we True. we really are uh, passionate about psychoanalysis and the different shape of it we still go to training uh, as we're recording we have a class on uh, <laughs> once a week <laughs> probably not when we, we will be out but uh um, probably for me still but anyway <laughs> Uh, so we This are is the really longest <laughs> training in <laughs> of all. <laughs> it is. So we are really into it. But yes, for it some patient to come once a week is a big deal to them. This is psychoanalysis. And you see, this is where the question of how flexible can we be to allow our patient to teach us, mm -hmm. to teach us that this is how psychoanalysis can be. Yeah. Allow the patient to supervise us. Of course, that's uh, from Nancy McWilliams' book. Mm -hmm. She says that there are occasions and moments when the patient is, in fact, supervising us. And the way I have understood that statement is that as we engage with the patient, we begin to realize how close or how far we need to be for the process to move forward, mm -hmm. to be propelled into its potential. And that requires us to acknowledge that the patient is saying... Uh, once a week is fantastic. This is great. And we may feel that we want to do something else, but the patient is really offering supervision to us. Yeah. Also, what we can learn from patient is um, how transference and counter-transference can work. Because sometimes we might feel like the patient are uh, defending against actually doing psychoanalysis, even if they come sometime multiple times a week. And we can find ourselves being clueless about the situation. And uh, if we rush to think that it's the patient's fault and that the patient is not doing that job, then we might be missing the fact that there might be communication then in these moments. Mm -hmm. That what we are feeling is not an, just an act, but a repetition, an unconscious repetition from the patient who is trying to unconsciously communicate with us about an experience that he or she can't really verbalize. Yes. Carry with them all the time. Mm -hmm. Which reminds me of the type of patient who is not able to tolerate silence. Mm -hmm. And if we have been trained in some schools that equate neutrality with silence, mm -hmm. the patient is telling us in supervision, meaning mm -hmm. <laughs> the patient supervises us, saying, this is not going to work. <laughs> this is not going to work. 
work. I need you to talk. You need to be more verbally present, verbally active in the room with me. The patient is saying that. And the question is, how do we react to that? Do we say no, because I know better and this is how psychoanalysis is? Or we say, actually, you're teaching me something. I have learned to move into the latter, mm -hmm. meaning to move closer to the patient in terms of the needs of the patient. So the patient needs me to be more verbally present and, or active, and I'll be there. I'll try my best to provide that without denying that there is an internal dynamic happening there in that request. And that's maybe where we can conclude this podcast, is that maybe the thing to keep in mind is for us to keep analyzing. Correct, yes. It's not that easy. Yes. My experience is when I stop analyzing, the way I go back to being a psychologist is to actually wonder what happened, to analyze the fact that I stopped analyzing. Yes. It's not being like a machine where you analyze even outside of your office that I... I'm very clear when you're outside of your office, you should just turn that off uh, and not, and, and not uh, persecute well, people around you. I think our you. relatives will ask us to turn it off. I yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we hear about uh, some people who grew up with analyst parents who can't really trust psychoanalysts because they were listening to stories about patients like, who the hell does that? I mean, it's very bad. People come and they have, uh, you're supposed to have confidentiality. Like, people who come to see me, only my supervisor and sometimes my analyst uh, hear about them and they don't even know their names. Mm -hmm. It's private. It's supposed to be secure. Like, don't talk about it to your spouse, to your significant other, to your children. Like, that's part of the frustration of being an analyst. You keep it to yourself. Yeah. Or the other side of the coin is when a friend, like it happened to me, a friend mm -hmm. of mine told me, stop analyzing me. Oh, yeah. yeah well. It happened to me too. <laughs> A long time ago, and then I stopped. <laughs> like, okay, and, and it does, and it doesn't help anybody. No, like, I think I'm sure everybody who tried to do some wild psychoanalysis realized quickly that you're actually breaking everything around you. But in the room, I agree with you. We need to ask ourselves what's happening here. What are the underlying dynamics that are unfolding here? Why do I express my desire to see them more? Why do Correct. I actually not express my desire Correct. to see them more? Even if we are clear that there is no real definitive answer to keep the movement. Mm -hmm. I feel like to keep the movement is really helpful in sense of, actually, what do we do with patients who can do psychoanalysis? We still do psychoanalysis. We keep doing it. Yes. As long as we can. And Going back to, and just to conclude, I guess, uh, the question of the transference, probably the patient that I talked about last time, this is probably what happened. Something unconscious was happening. And I guess at the time I was, I really was not able to uh, understand what the unconscious communication was about. And it failed mm -hmm. in that sense. We always have to keep in mind that even if we see patients who are apparently neurotic, yes. they will communicate through preverbal means of communication. Oh, yes. It doesn't matter where the patient is located. Let's say in the neurotic side of the spectrum, the patient may have some borderline features or even psychotic episodes. That we have to keep in mind. Yeah, indeed. I guess this is it for today. 
It is. Now, I think you wanted to tell the audience something about this specific podcast. Yes. For all those who are still listening at the end of the podcast, we wanted to mention a little trivia, which is that even if we are listening to this podcast in December 2021, it was actually recorded in March 2019. Because it was the last <laughs> podcast, Edgar, Francisco, and myself recording on site in my office. Mm -hmm. Well, it took us a while to be able to deliver it. I think also, the, as I mentioned in the intro, the question of the name. I didn't want to release the podcast before I found a suitable title. That's it. So a little bit of a trivia. A memory of us being in my small office and uh, with the two mics plugged on the same mixer, not having mm -hmm. to deal with Zoom and other things like that. Yeah, It was a different time. <laughs> it was. It was. It was. <laughs> but the question, I think, remained the same. Podcast is still, I think, pretty up to date. But hey, mm -hmm. it's up to our listener to let us know. And we do welcome comments, questions, criticism, whatever. Yes. Anyway, that's it for today. If you like the podcast, give us five stars. If you didn't like it, well, please don't put any stars. That's a don't don't even don't even grade it. <laughs> don't think about it. <laughs> that's it. Thank you for listening. Until then, bye. Bye bye.